0: So what is really going on right now is the Fed had an issue. It didn't cause the issue. It was part of the issue, but it didn't cause it. The amount of money injected in the financial system actually caused it along with the Ukrainian situation. So now we got to address it and the Fed is addressing it in a very active and aggressive manner by raising rates. So when we think about the necessary medicine it takes to get us all stable, it's something we're gonna have to take and the Fed at least has been vocal about what it's going to do and play it out. So when we think back about all of the cycles in commercial real estate, this is unique because we didn't cause it. This is not a supply issue. It's not necessarily a demand issue right now. This is a cost of capital issue in its fight for inflation. And I think it's really important for all of us to step back and go, okay, well the instrument they're using is debt, so making it more expensive to do anything, to essentially crush demand So we see prices fall.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. We're excited to share our November 9th Bank of Texas Speaker Series event with you all today. It was our final educational program of the year and a pretty popular one at that. It's our annual Capital Markets Update with Mark Gibson, who is the CEO of JLL Capital Markets Americas and a longtime Track member. Mark leads nearly 2,000 capital markets professionals across the U.S., Canada, and Latin America, and as a member of JLL's Global Capital Markets Board, he shares responsibility for the strategic direction, growth, and client activities of the company's global capital markets business. As I said, this presentation is one of our most popular events throughout the year, and rightly so. Mark's always got great insights. I know I always learn something from his presentation, and I hope you do too as well especially as the year winds down and planning for 2023 ramps up. But before we get started, I'd like to recognize and thank our Speaker Series sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, The Dallas Morning News, and now Global Pro for their support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast network to get all new episodes right to your mobile device and follow Trek on social media and YouTube for the latest news, updates, and content from around the Real Estate Council. Now, here's Mark Gibson and his 2023 Capital Markets Update right here on TrackCast. Good afternoon.
2: I want to welcome you members and guests to our last Bank of Texas speaker series for the year. This is our Capital Markets Update with Mark Gibson. We always look forward to it. I'm Kim Butler with Hall Group and the chair of 2022. I want to thank our generous sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, the Dallas Morning News, and a new sponsor, Global Pro. I'd also like to thank our programs committee under the steady leadership of Jeff Montgomery with Republic Title. They have brought us relevant, informative, and insightful programs this year. Trek's mission is to cultivate relationships in the commercial real estate industry to catalyze community investment, influence policy, propel careers, and develop the leaders of tomorrow. We believe that relationships are the lifeblood of career success, community involvement, and civic responsibility. I've been a TREK member for years, and I cannot be prouder to have served as chair this year. I know firsthand what the people in this room are capable of, and I have seen this organization experience enormous success from playing a pivotal role in the early development of Clyde Warren Park, which just celebrated its 10th anniversary, by the way, to forging through a global pandemic while continuing to impact the lives of our neighbors through the work of Trek community investors. Our success would not be possible without our members volunteering their time and talents. So thank you to you all. There will be plenty of opportunities to be involved in 2023, so be sure and renew your membership. Uh, We are going to do renewals online this year, so watch your email for instructions on how to do that. But please renew and join us in our mission for 2023. We will show and continue to do so what we are able to accomplish when we set very ambitious goals for ourselves and build a city that we all imagine. Our speaker today is Mark Gibson, CEO Capital Markets Americas with JLL, and he needs no introduction for many of us. Mark leads nearly 2,000 capital markets professionals across the US, Canada, and Latin America. He also shares responsibility for the strategic direction, growth, and client activities of JLL's global capital markets business as a member of the firm's Global Capital Markets Board. Before becoming the CEO of JLL Capital Markets Americas as part of the HFF acquisition, Mark was a founding partner of LP, having served as its CEO. Mark is a graduate of the University of, Te- of Texas at Austin. Let me just say that Mark is a proud graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. And Mark, I wore this burnt orange dress, especially in your honor today. And that's not the easiest thing to do as a Texas Tech Red Raider. Uh, But uh, I sincerely wanted to express my personal appreciation for you being with us today. Mark is a true man of service and has provided or currently provides leadership and guidance in the highest positions for many organizations. Just a few are the UT Real Estate Finance and Investment Center and the McCombs School of Business, AFIRE, Urban Land Institute, ICSC, UT Southwestern University Hospital, Baylor Healthcare System Foundation, and Camden Property Trust. Mark is a former chairman of TREC and continues to be a trusted advisor for us. Please help me welcome Mark Gibson to the stage.
0: Thank you, Kim, for that Longhorn dress that you're wearing. It's a little bit of a big game this weekend. It'll be fun to watch. Um, it is such a privilege to be here um, each year. I'm a little amazed I keep uh, getting invited back, but it is, it is a highlight for me, and it's a privilege to be here just to share what we're seeing in the marketplace, and on that note, um, if anyone today would tell you they have it all figured out and they know exactly what's occurring in the marketplace, everyone ought to head and do the exits uh, and leave as quickly as you can because it's, uh, it's an interesting time frame uh, that we're all uh, living in, and it's a little bit uncertain. And so the good news is I'm not going to give you any opinions uh, here. This is a reporting, so think of each of you as a shareholder. And what we're reporting is what we're hearing in the marketplace, we're a reasonable proxy. We're pricing roughly $200 billion across a lot of different uh, types of businesses, M&A and investment sales and debt and equity, fundraising, et cetera. So we're just going to give you uh, a snapshot of what we're hearing and then hopefully there's some takeaways for each of you. Uh, I really hope that is the case, that we're using your time effectively. So. With that, we're going to jump into some uh, some quick discussions. And the format here is I'm going to talk a little bit up front, then I'm going to show you about 35 slides that just validate what I've said. They're all third-party data. Uh, and if you want a copy of this so you can study them at your leisure, let us know and we will get one to you. You're not going to be able to do that up here. I'm going to move pretty quick just because I uh, respect your time too much. So on the first Slide here. We we spend a lot of time with the largest corporations in the world, uh, both from a tenant rep standpoint or a corporate relocation perspective, as well as a lot of investors and owners in the office space. And the whole idea that work from home was going to eliminate office as an institutional investment class is just not true. Um, however, there is a lot going on. So what is really happening here uh, across the board is since the beginning of the pandemic, 100% of the absorption in the office arena has come in buildings built 2015 or newer. So think about that as a takeaway. Secondly, uh, many employers have begun to see pretty substantial labor productivity fall, but yet they have this labor tension, both as an employer and employee of, well, business has been so robust I can't afford to lose people, and therefore I'm going to be careful and walk a very fine line relative to what I know would increase productivity. Um, But the moment that tension changes, uh, every single CEO that we've chatted with has stated uh, it'll be a work from work culture. Now, does that mean there's no flexibility? The answer is absolutely not. There was flexibility pre pandemic relative to days in the office or some flexibility. There, ironically, if you look at occupancies in buildings pre-pandemic, they were about 85% uh, to begin with. So you have to go off that as a benchmark. But work from work is coming. That will be a mantra in 2023. We've begun to see wide-scale layoffs. Those are going to continue for a host of reasons. And so that employer-employee tension is changing, and that has ramifications both for the office sector as well as for inflation uh, in terms of wage, acceleration or wage deflation so keep an eye on those themes net net the occupiers want new buildings in highly amenitized locations or buildings and the investors want the same thing so the office may be the greatest have and have not of any product type I've seen in my career so how you price both it would be almost impossible to talk about office as a sector without breaking it into new and not new across the board. Retail is going to lose its institutional investor status. That is completely inaccurate. Um, In fact, it may be the most defensive investment that a lot of our investors are looking at, primarily because the business models have been tested through a very difficult time during the pandemic. So if you survived and adjusted your business model as a retailer and were able to get through the pandemic and actually grow or upscale uh, your offerings, it's pretty impactful, and as a result, we've seen a significant rotation of capital into retail, and we'll show you the data later, as well as pricing that is incredibly strong, both as measured today or 180 days ago, or even pre-pandemic in 2019. The suburban uh, flight will, you know, diminish the gateways across the board, or said differently, High growth markets will diminish the gateways, et cetera. We don't believe that to be true because we see significant reverse in migration into many of the gateways uh, as well as urban areas and fast growth markets. So we don't believe that to be true. The data does not support it. Uh, However, all of the issues, particularly in a gateway versus a fast growth market, will take New York versus Atlanta remain uh, and maybe even accelerated Um, since the pandemic so all the issues of regulatory taxation burdens cost of living commute times etc all still are there plus a few others that have not diminished the fast growth markets it's just not going to be the, um, the significant out migration that everybody was expecting relative to some of our gateways And then finally, everyone's talking about massive distress that was going to happen during the pandemic. That didn't happen, as all of us know, maybe for three months from March to May in 2020. And then we've been on this jaunt of accelerated growth since that period of time. And frankly, there wasn't great uh, distress selling in 08-09. And the question is, is there going to be distress selling, assuming we're already in a recession and heading to a recession? And that's to be determined. But one thing that we might ask you to think about is the office arena, particularly older and what many people would call obsolescence that is in many of the cities, particularly the older cities across the United States, the percentage of that older population of office buildings is at risk. And we're beginning to see that happen with short sales, short sales happening with the lenders, plenty of people giving back assets as well as loan sales activity that are increasing across the board. So just those quick factors uh, in terms of what people have been saying and the mantra, and we just wanted to demystify it. From a uh, CRE or a capital market standpoint, we're in really great shape as an industry. So when we look at where we uh, have been, we have performed incredibly well over many, many years, we'll call it 20 years. The allocations have doubled as a result we had fixed income rotation so when rates were really low everyone got out of fixed income and flew into real estate because it has combination of both income as well as appreciation so inflation protection as well as current income or mimics the fixed income securities and as a result we have re- record liquidity of roughly 400 billion that was true until russian in- invaded ukraine and then all of a sudden it changed the dynamic relative to inflation and what we have to do to inflation. We, we had this march upward that really changed the, the calculus uh, for the Fed and many others. So where do we stand now? We have a little bit of an issue, which is real estate is not, not in favor. We're competing with other asset classes. You've looked at the 10-year bond. You see where it is. You see where other fixed income Assets are trading. If you're in the public market, you can see what the public market has done. So we're competing, as we always do as an asset class. And in addition, we have this issue called the denominator effect. And for those of you unfamiliar with it, you have an allocation to real estate if you're a Texas teacher's retirement system. Let's say that's 10%. If the equity market falls by 25%, which it has done, in your allocation to real estate in terms of where you currently stood is no longer at 10, it's at 13, 14 which means you, in the past, would have to indiscriminately sell assets to rebalance back into the tent, which caused all kinds of issues in volatility and pricing 20 years ago. Post the Great uh, Recession, they put bands on the 10% allocation. So you can go up 400 basis points or down 400 basis points without having to sell or rebalance, and it really smoothed out volatility in our business. The issue we have this time And we would have been fine if it was just the denominator effect, but we have a numerator effect. And the numerator effect is that multi-housing and industrial accelerated so rapidly, along with a 25% decline in the denominator, that we're now at a capped situation relative to inflows. And the immediate impact of that is our Odyssey funds, which are primarily the core capital in the commercial real estate space, are going to be frozen for a while because they have a methodology of valuing There are portfolios that takes nine to 12 months for spot market pricing to actually enter into that world. So it'll be an interesting thing to watch. We call it a gate of inflows and outflows into the Odyssey Fund. From a participant standpoint, all of these folks are participating. So I'm just gonna highlight a couple. We've hit the domestic institutions relative to allocation issues with denominator, numerator effect. The private investors, so think about syndicated equity is playing through this in a big way. In fact, they're filling massive gaps. So that is very robust across the board. They can get local and regional bank financing or seller financing in many cases, very active. Overseas capital is viewing, all of them currently, are viewing now is the time to enter the US in a massive way. If you think about their options, they can go to Europe. Europe, from an economic standpoint, doesn't look nearly as attractive. Asia has its own set of risks so at this moment the United States from a real estate standpoint is incredibly in favor the issue is we have a strong dollar so we have hedging cost risks that are they're clipping the amount of overseas capital coming into the space ultra high net worth in the retail investor so an ultra high net worth would be a very wealthy client there's 14 trillion of this capital that has been raised and formed since 2003 they're acting like institutions, but they don't behave like them. Acting in terms of size and investing in real estate, but are contracyclical, more opportunistic, or entrepreneurial in the institutional capital. The retail investor, so these last three here are in the same category. So you'll look at the non-traded REIT, which is a public company. It's just not traded. And then you look at the REITs. Both of those are typically non-correlated, Uh, to institutional capital, particularly the NTR business, and both of those are playing through the cycle, but we are competing with fixed income. So if you're getting a 5% dividend yield in a real estate vehicle and you can go buy a 4.5% treasury, we have to get our heads around that a little bit. So we do see some uh, inflow and outflow uh, components that are causing us a little distrust in that market as well. Finally, what everybody's here to talk about is really pricing. So let me just, everybody take a breath for a minute. All right, let's, just, let's just all step back and get a little perspective. So I'm going to ro- roll back the clock to 2019. So in 2019, how many developers are in the room? Just raise your hand. Right, everybody was whining. Oh my gosh, I just can't believe these cost. This is unsustainable. Then it accelerated into 2021 and we had this massive inflation at 8% a quarter, and that is completely unsustainable. So something had to happen. In addition, we had every investor in the world in 2019 going, the US has been on the largest and longest macroeconomic expansion in history. It has to come to an end. It's gonna come to an end in 2019. And when the pandemic hit everybody goes, yeah, and then it didn't, because we had unbelievable fiscal stimulus hit our systems. So all of that happened during the period of time. So what is really going on right now is the Fed had an issue. It didn't cause the issue. It was part of the issue, but it didn't cause it. The amount of money injected into the financial system actually caused it, along with the Ukrainian situation. So now we've got to address it, and the Fed is addressing it in a very active and aggressive manner by raising rates. So when we think about the necessary medicine it takes to get us all stable, it's something we're gonna have to take. And the Fed at least has been vocal about what it's going to do and play it out. So when we think back about all of the cycles in commercial real estate, this is unique because we didn't cause it. This is not a supply issue. It's not necessarily a demand issue right now. This is a cost of capital issue in its fight for inflation. And I think it's really important for all of us to step back and go, okay, well, the instrument they're using is debt, so making it more expensive to do anything, to essentially crush demand so we see prices fall. And as part of that, we all need to look back and say, well, when do we think there's going to be measurable progress against inflation? And I don't mean going from 8 to 2, which is the target, but maybe it's 8 to 5 or 8 to 6, And you should ask yourself what happens to the bond market when the bond market says, "Mm, I think they're making progress on this. What happens to the 10-year bond? And if the 10-year bond rallies, then what happens to the pricing of real estate because the risk-free rate is the benchmark that we apply a risk premium to to determine where real estate is priced. So we have to think about this strategically about how long do we think this is gonna last and where do we actually go relative to cost
1: of capital? ALC application season is back, and now is your chance to take the next step in your real estate career and be a part of Trek's premier leadership development program. ALC stands for Associate Leadership Council. It's a 10-month class that takes participants on a journey through the commercial real estate industry and Dallas civic life. Class members come together for monthly educational programs and lunches, network with our city's top business leaders and political figures, get personalized career training with an executive coaching firm, and implement a community investment project. The training and benefits that class members receive often have a profound impact on their careers for years to come, and you'll make lifelong friends and business connections who are united in this shared experience of becoming the next generation of commercial real estate leaders here in Dallas. There are two applications for you to submit, a pre-application and full application, as well as additional required materials. Starting this year, applicants must also be between the ages of 30 and 40 as of January 1, 2023, to be eligible for consideration. In January, we'll host two open house events where you can network with fellow applicants, program alums, and members of the ALC Steering Committee, who will ultimately select the class of 2023. You can learn more about the program and apply now at recouncil.com backslash ALC. That's recouncil.com backslash ALC. Now, let's get back to the show.
0: So on that point, the risk premium is abnormally high and understandably so. So you have a risk-free rate. We'll call it the U.S. Treasury bond. It could be the corporate A bond. It could be a lot of things, but for the most part, 10-year Treasury bond and you have a risk premium put on it that is an average that real estate has needed in order to attract capital over a period of time, and everyone is from an institutional investor standpoint are stepping back and going, "Now wait a second here, okay? Am I smart to deploy now at the risk that the cost of capital and the, the return I could earn is gonna be higher in the next three months or should I just wait? So if I deploy, you gotta pay me for it, for that risk. And secondly, Pretty certain the Fed is gonna put us into a recession because they're gonna overdo it, just like they were late getting to the party to start raising rates. We're gonna take too long because the data is backdated six months and it lags into the system in terms of measuring inflation. So we're gonna be in a recession because they will overdo it, so therefore I have to simultaneously underwrite slacking demand. And that's where we are. So there's plenty of capital. You just won't like the price. And that's true across the board. So there's no lack of willingness, it's a matter of what are you gonna pay me. And so that is in and of itself a strategic question that we have to think through. What has happened is this is very simple if you think about it. The issue that we're facing is just negative leverage. So if you're selling a multi-housing deal at a three or four historically, and your borrowing costs are now five and a quarter to five and three quarters, does that work? And the answer is no, it doesn't work. So we're adjusting and we're figuring it out. So when you see the result of this risk premium and where we are, the result of both underwriting capital costs potentially going higher where they are today and slackening demand has reduced the value of our assets 15 to 30%. Could I show you examples where it was less than 15% every day? Could I show you examples where it was greater than 30% every single day? But 85% of the trades over the last 90 days are here. So that's the fact. And again, it's just math. This is it, it's nothing mysterious, it's just math. And the question is, when does the math change? And therefore, when does inflation change? Because then the debt market will change and we'll see the pricing of real estate change. So just think about those concepts. We are spending a lot of time with the largest investors in the world talking about what's realistic and realistic meaning that 15 to 30 percent was what was pricing 180 days ago Um, we think that's an irrelevant benchmark because unless you think we're going to have another pandemic with excessive fiscal stimulus we're not going to go back there so what is the realistic benchmark we should be thinking about in our view and many others view is we ought to look at pre-pandemic stimulus And figure out where were the bonds trading and where was real estate trading 2018, 2019 as a more realistic benchmark. And by the way, your values are higher today, right now, than they were then, by and large. So we have to put it in perspective and say, all right, what is realistic? Relative, do you hold, do you sell, do you sell and get the liquidity? Because a lot of people are still making money even at these cap rates particularly in the multi-housing and industrial space and you have capital to redeploy. So we're thinking through all of those now. We have told people, if you don't have to trade, why would you in terms of consuming capital? Because we do think things are gonna change in the first and second quarter of next year because based on what we're seeing with retail inventories, when I say we, not not our opinion, the investor opinion, uh, they see retail inventories ballooning, they see home starts uh, collapsing, 70%. 70%. So think about the consumption that a new home takes in hard goods and soft goods and building materials and technology, and that's all gone. You're starting to see home prices fall and rents fall. You see shipping container fall. And so across the, the globe, when we see these these layoffs, you have wage defi- So at some point in time, you're going to see that show up. In the inflation measure and when that does you're going to have a cheaper cost of capital because the bond market will correct and go oh well maybe we got inflation under control so that is something that we're that we're hearing and we're going to make sense to us and so if you can great but if you can't there's there's faster capitulation than we expected because a lot of people still are making money that rather take the liquidity and move on and go reinvest so a lot is happening in that world because of the bank market and the debt market, any transaction over $75 million will not maximize your price. It's just very difficult to do. And again, it's debt-driven. And when we look at the bottom part of this, we, we have a very large market share in what we call equity placement, which is um, raising equity for to-be-built product. It's almost 65%. So it's a very large book across the U.S. That book is down 70%. So, you have to think about that relative to well, what does supply look like, particularly in those product types where you have tailwinds behind you, like industrial with onshoring, which is very real, and nearshoring. And then you have multi housing, and we definitely have a shortage of multi housing in the marketplace, and not many people can afford a single family home given the cost of debt that we have currently. So, those are interesting dynamics in the marketplace strategically. Financing, we hit most of it. The only thing I do want to hit here is just the money center bank conundrum, and that is the money center banks. So these are the largest banks in the U.S., and those banks could pose systemic risk to the system. So they're very—they have tighter regulations than your regional or local banks, and they have a business model to originate loans, sell it down in the public market in some form or fashion and or get repaid and and just rotate the capital. Whether that business model was broken when inflation went to where it is and the cost of debt went to where it is because they have to mark the loans that were originated on their book now and they can't sell them in the public market. It's too big of a loss. They're not getting payoffs and then the Fed came back and tightened risk-based capital requirements. So essentially they're frozen. That's a big deal. If nothing happens, so we don't make progress on inflation we don't get the bid ask gap in the public market in, in debt compressing because of the risk premium that we mentioned if nothing else happens just through retained earnings through the first quarter they're going to have a little bit more leeway in the risk-based capital ratios we also think the fed is going to come out shortly and tell the borrower market we're going to take a page out of the 2020 playbook and we don't want you foreclosing on borrowers in good standing whose loans are current, why don't we not re-margin and let's not create or exasperate a financial condition when clearly our issue is fighting inflation. We'll see if that plays out. On the business model front, uh, we, the last time we did this, we talked about the merging of business models between large investors or investment management companies and the owner operators. And all of this is done over the last two years and particularly right this minute. Is it's accelerated beyond our water streams, and we have big dreams here. So this is massive. And the concept here being that Blackstone, which is the largest investment manager in the world, you know, 15 years ago, let's say they still were, uh, probably quadruple the slides today. They own 55 separate real estate operating companies to deploy that capital. And on the opposite side, we had the world's largest owner operator of multi-housing, Graystar, move into the investment management business, and now they're one of the largest investment manager businesses in the US. So the business models moving, blurring together, mixing together is massive. And it's going to continue for a host of reasons, namely that the capital doesn't want to pay a double promote, they want proprietary deal flow, they want faster decision making with boots on the ground. And if you look at the owner operator, they need pre-dev, they need pursuit, and take down capital to compete effectively in the marketplace. So those dynamics are really causing this shift to happen very, very quickly. And if you go to the far right on ESG, a lot of people are going, ah, eh, you know, how's that going to look now that everybody just wants their lights to turn on and get gas for their car? We understand that, but there have been massive pledges by the occupiers, the largest companies in the world, and the largest investors in the world, trying to get to net carbon neutrality by X date and They don't quite know how to get there. No one can define net carbon, net neutrality, which is a risk, but it's not gonna go away. And it's very big. So we as a real estate company have to, or a real estate industry, are going to be addressing this for quite some time. So those are the major themes. Let me jump quickly into the slides that help you visualize what I just said. So quickly, liquidity, um, we were off to a great start for the first nine months through August. So you can see the marks at 22% up. There's a little box in the in the bottom right there that shows that September volume was down 43%. Now that's not what all of us are experiencing. That is the market as measured by RCA. So everything trading above two and a half million dollars, strictly due to debt and cost to capital and all the issues that we're facing. Uh, I brought, uh, broke that down, transactional volume by property type, but. Uh, The only call-out that I have here is to go look at multi-housing in the middle of the top row and look at the outperformance relative to virtually anyone else. They have an unfair advantage. It's called Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So they have incredible alternative debt uses than the traditional bank markets and other debt funds. And then if you look to the bottom left and look at retail, the rotation of capital into retail, there's nothing more explicit that I could show you to demonstrate what I was talking about. So that is pretty amazing. In fact, it's even more shocking when you look at the actual results of the retailers and what we're seeing across the board in the retail REITs. From an alternative perspective to the left, you can see all of them listed, data centers, SFR, life science, Manufacturing housing, et cetera. They've outperformed our top performing asset classes, both in rent and in total return. So it's garnered a much larger share of the marketplace, approaching 13%, which is almost a double as you can see, since 2015, and that is going to continue to escalate, particularly data centers and SFR and the manufactured housing, so think affordable housing, et cetera, is going to continue to escalate. Another escalation is going to be mixed use. So when you think about mixed use product, all of us have our own definition of it, but it's product that has been built purposely to operate within a, an ecosphere. You can see the results here, but if you have office and multi, the only two components we compared, your rents in primary markets are 29% greater in the office arena in a mixed use versus similar assets within the same submarket, and in the multi, it's even higher, so 43%, particularly in the secondary markets, because it's unique in a secondary market versus a primary market. And then, of course, your cap rates are lower, and your price per foot is higher, so... Those are real. We have very uh, large state plans that have now formed mixed use teams and all they do is underwrite mixed use, just like they would industrial or multi-housing or office. So this is a trend to keep in mind as well. From a liquidity perspective, don't look at the right, just look at the left, because all we're concerned about, are we setting ourselves up if the rug gets pulled out from under us from any specific equity provider that we're in deep trouble? And the answer is no. It's unbelievably diversified, and everyone is playing through it. So your REITs are playing, your institutional investors are playing, your overseas investors, your private capital is playing, your non-listed REITs are playing. So we have great diversification. It should give us all a lot of comfort. Dry powder. I said record liquidity. Well, here's your evidence. So you can see where we are in terms of dry powder, but no one's deploying because it's hard to deploy because we have a risk premium. And no one wants to accept the risk premium until they see really where the trend line's going to go. So what's happened is that's still there. The issue is pricing ideas and underwriting has changed. But you can see what's happened to fundraising. It's fallen off a cliff because there's already a lot of dry powder. When we look at the allocations doubling, so I mentioned if you look at 2010 to where we are today, you can see those allocations doubling. We're going to see them double again and probably the next 10 years. So as an industry, we are in incredibly good shape across the board. When we look at scale, so scale matters, and we talked about platforms merging. I forgot to chat about the public markets and private markets and companies trying to get bigger because of technology spend and G&A spend and various other things that are happening in the space. But here's a great example of the big getting bigger from a fund standpoint. So they're now capturing 55% of the available capital up from 22%. And if you look at just the scale here, so look at Blackstone raising 53 billion last year versus Graystar at 3.3 billion, it's massive. So that is interesting when we start talking about business models. And then the combination of all of this is our open and closed-end vehicles in the US have doubled similar to the allocations. And again, this trend line is very consistently up from this point forward because allocations are likely to double again. I mentioned the overseas investors and their interest in coming to the US. I wanna show you scale here. So our largest pension fund in the United States is CalPERS. It's third from the bottom at 300 billion. So look at the delta between CalPERS and Japan Post in terms of available assets to invest. CalPERS, even though this is a little dated at 14% or so allocation, it's actually a little higher. And look at Japan Post at less than 1.5% allocated real estate, but wants to get to 10. So where do we think the runway is? So it's massive when we start thinking about that scale for us. You can see what's happened via the hedging cost, though. So when we look at 22 versus 23 year over year, you can see a dramatic drop-off because the dollar is so strong as a result of what we're doing with inflation. The Canadians are still the largest uh, investor in the US, but let me show you something that you might find interesting. So these are hedging costs relative to the dollar. So everything below the line are the major currencies in the world and the black line all the way at the bottom is the yen. And ironically, we're selling several platforms to Japanese investors that are just dollar denominated. So it's not a complete accurate general statement that no Japanese investor is gonna invest in the US. It depends on where they are. However, the ones that are going to invest are the UK, the Middle East, because all their capital is dollar denominated as a result of oil and the Australians. And we're beginning to see that play out very strongly because it's to their advantage to do so via uh, hedging. The surge in private wealth, we talked about high net worth and how they act almost institution, not behavioral, but size. And so here's your evidence of 12 trillion, They allocate about 14% and you can see two thirds of these family offices have been formed since 2000. So an amazing amount of capital and very interested in hard assets primarily for wealth preservation. So these are longer dated holds in the marketplace. On the public market side, um, we can see the REIT M&A and for all the reasons that scale matters, we saw the highest level M&A activity in US history last year we were on our way to more than eclipses because those are powerful forces behind uh, this phenomenon however the debt market has curtailed this and it's likely to stay about where it is because you just don't have the ability to raise large-scale debt at any attractive cost of capital relative to m a so we see that stalling out on the non-traded reit so non-traded reits are a mutual fund for lack of a better word, so think of Vanguard and Fidelity, but they only focus on commercial real estate. Generally speaking, and their feed lows used to be 16%. That changed in 2016. They're now two to four percent. Blackstone led the way with a new model there, and as a result, we saw massive increase in inflows into this space, which is non-correlated institution that prov- to institutional capital and mindset. It provides us a buffer, but now you see this fall off, and the fall off is primarily due to overseas investors. So it's the dollar issue again because a lot of this growth it was domestic but the majority of it was opening the warehouses to Europe and into Asia and now we're seeing the reverberation of those redeeming. So we do have a little bit of an in and out situation in the non-trader REIT. We have started to see the domestics come back into the non-trader REIT world and that is good. So domestics meeting all of us. On the debt front, very liquid, just a matter of price. So not an issue. You can see we're up similar to investment sales through the third quarter. No surprise in terms of who is providing it, in terms of the banks and the agencies, and where is it going? No surprise again, to multi-housing, because they have an unfair advantage in terms of capital. So we have to keep that in mind. When we look at the same construct in the debt market as we did the equity market, are we at risk if someone completely pulls out of the market that will collapse in terms of pricing in the debt space and the answer is no so unlike 2007 where the CMBS market was 50% it's the public market when it shut down we were in a world of hurt here that's not the case and there's further differentiation on the banks the local and regional banks are largely playing through this the money center banks are not for the reasons that we already discussed um, I'm gonna hit the chart on the right, because people go, my gosh, there's no capital. Well, actually since August, so if you just look at August through October, we've actually put under app and are closing 15.5 billion. So that's untrue. So the liquidity is there. It's just, do you want to accept the cost of capital necessary to do it? And it depends on how you structure it and what it looks like. And I've given you the breakdown of what that looks like both in terms, in banks, or the agencies, or the insurance companies, or debt funds. So all of these are active. The banks are primarily the local and regional banks playing through that, but they're active. And again, it's a pricing issue, which goes back to our inflation issue.
1: The new year will be here sooner than you know it, and that means it's time to renew your TREC membership for 2023. However, the process will look a little different this year you will not receive a paper invoice in the mail. Instead, renewals will be done entirely online through our new member portal, Community Hub. All individual members, so that's those at the investor, advocate, and Young Guns levels, will need to renew as an individual, while group renewals will be offered for corporate memberships only, those at the partner, principal, stakeholder, and founder levels. To renew your membership, log into your Community Hub account today over at recouncil.com by clicking the blue member login box in the top right corner of the screen. All members must create a Community Hub profile to renew their memberships, register for events, and more. For more information, check out the blog post we published about Community Hub last month over at recouncil.com backslash track-news or hit the link in the show notes. Now, back to our Capital Markets Update.
0: On the gateway, non-gateway that we mentioned, employment growth and population growth matter. We ought to wake up every day and thank God that we live in the state of Texas because it's really powerful. So if you just look at the population and employment growth, which we make real estate hard, but really if these two things are in your favor, you tend to make money. So that is really good um, in terms of where people want to be and therefore where do investors want to be in terms of real estate demand, but there's another factor, and that is these innovation centers. So historically, there were six uh, or five in the US, you can see them in the red dots, but now you see the emerging, and the emerging innovative centers, so, so think STEM employment, you can see it in Dallas and Houston, ironically, are in that, that, that underwriting ring which is really powerful when we're talking to investors and where they see growth coming forward in terms of industries. And what does all this mean at the end of the day? It means liquidity is incredibly high. So when you look at Dallas, Fort Worth, transactional activity, we eclipse New York and we have 25% of the inventory. This has been consistent over the last three years. Never seen it before in my career before that. It's pretty shocking. So all of this points to, geez, we have a lot of interest, both from an investor standpoint um, and an occupier standpoint to be where we are, which is great. All right, on the pricing front, supply matters. So you can see this is overall supply, and you can see where we are today or where we were at roughly 1.2, just right at the long-term average of product being delivered in the marketplace, and we see it declining in 22, and this is for all product type. We don't see that in multi-housing. In fact, we think you're going to have your, a very high supply year coming up in the next 11 months in multi-housing, which is going to cause a little bit of temporary, maybe rent relief in some form or fashion. We'll see, which could be interesting for inflation, but otherwise, supply is dramatically falling um, across the board. I'm going to give you a statistic in a minute in terms of what we might think about relative to that. But just quickly jumping into the office arena relative to supply and where people want to be. This is... The tenant's desires, and I mentioned that 2015 or newer buildings took 100% of the positive absorption in the office space since the pandemic. And there's evidence of same, and you can see the outperformance of those buildings, both in terms of price uh, and in rent. So very powerful story here. So we have to think about, I can't talk about office anymore as office. I have to talk about new or not. And it's gonna probably be the greatest have and have not. I mentioned labor productivity that every CEO in the U.S. is bemoaning at the moment for a host of reasons, namely work from home in many of the industries, and that's going to be changing the work-to-work dynamic. We look at affordability issues in the multi-space, which has existed for quite some time, so we need more housing in the United States, and now we have the exasperation of very high mortgage cost, diminishing the affordability of single-family homes, which means you're probably gonna have more demand move into multi-housing from a rental standpoint for longer. When we look at industrial, uh, it's pretty shocking to me, actually, when you look at three quarters of the industrial portfolio older than 20 years, and then you look at a fourth of it older than 50 years. And you have very different dynamics from a logistics standpoint today that are required by many of the companies that we all know and depend on our goods to get there. And on replacement cost, I mentioned the whining uh, that we were all doing about costs just out of control and continuing to go. In the last 30 days, we've begun to see subs get a different mindset. We've seen costs beginning to come down. Um, And this is not perfect, but when you look at the REIT market relative to the cost of construction, there is the tightest correlation we could find anyway in terms of giving us some view of what might be happening. We're seeing it play out real time in the marketplace today depending upon the region. Um, from a risk-free rate, I mentioned the risk-free rate and I mentioned risk premium. This is the U.S. Treasury market at the bottom. So it's a 10-year U.S. bond. The three squiggly marks up there are all cap rates. One is the implied cap rate, the public market. One is NaCrif, which is the institutional core market, and the other is RCA, which is everything $2.5 million or above. And you can look to the far right of the historical spreads above the risk-free rate. So a really interesting question for all of us is where do you see the 10-year bond settling? And are we going to get inflation under control? Because that's going to help you think about cap rates. A little note here in 2018, the Treasury averaged 2.9% and they had four interest rate increases in 2019, three interest rate cuts with an average treasury of 2.1. There's a little symmetry there that we should think about. Um, In terms of total return, this was pretty concerning to every institutional investor. So total return is cash on cash and residual sale. That's how they look at it. And from 2008 until last year, The vast majority, three quarters of the total return was from cash on cash. So current income and 30% plus or minus was on appreciation with very measured exit cap rate and assumptions. In 2021, it flipped and you had three quarters from appreciation based on pretty aggressive rent growth assumptions and exit cap rates and 25% cash on cash and that was a problem. We began to see this correct uh, in terms of the numerator fact that we chatted about. So we're going to see this normalized probably uh, in the near future, call it over the next 12 months. A little busy side, just look at the black column and look at the purple column. We talked about 18 and 19 in terms of, I was struggling to go, what can I give you for a takeaway that you can think about? So this is the best that we could come up with. So if you look at the current in terms of where we are with SOFR, which is 3.8, it was when this was done. You look at one year ago of 0.04, January of 19 is 2.45, but the average was 2.14 and 2.06. So let's think about skating to the puck. The tenure bond, 4.17, two days ago. One year ago, 1.53, 2019, 2.68. And the average of 19, because we had three Fed cuts, 2.14, and the average in 18 is 2.19. So is it unreasonable to think we settle somewhere between a 25 and a 3% 10-year bond? And if we do, what does that mean relative to the spread above the risk-free rate? So it's a thought to think about. Another slide, and I'm just going to highlight cap rates in various risk premium issues that we're dealing with. So. In terms of the inflation and the cost of capital risk, if you just look at multi-housing for a minute, so at year-end 19, the cap rates were 3.75 to 4.5. We're talking core. The peak 180 days ago was 2.75 to 3.25, and we're now at 4.25 to 5.25. Where do you think we'll be in a year? Relative to using 2018-19 as a benchmark. Again, it's just a, it's a reference point that we ought to be anchoring to in terms of what is realistic and what is not realistic. If you drop down a notch, and you look at exit cap rates at the peak, they were essentially, you buy at a four, you exit at four and a quarter. That was the underwriting. Today, or now, as of this moment, you buy at four, you exit at five. So when we talk about more measured underwriting, because we likely will be in a recession, they're underwriting falling demand. So we're beginning to see that happen, those combinations, best example I could give you of why prices are where they are. The moment you start uh, mitigating that risk premium, this changes pretty quickly. So if you look at the bottom and you look at rent growth and where it was then, which is roughly 3% across the board, uh, uh, and then you look now, now it's 3% across the board. If you look, just look at multifamily, we're running 15 to 30% rent increases because of trade-outs. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see where we are currently and where can we reasonably think we're going to end up. Leverage is down. Be careful with the value here because we may not be as far down as we think we are depending upon where values sit, but we took off almost uh, 12% lower leverage since 2007, which has been really good for the industry. Cap rate sensitivity, a lot of people uh, just need to think about this. If your cap rate expands from four to five, then your rent to maintain the same price needs to go up 25% over whatever period of time. I just wanna reiterate the point though, that cap rates and interest rates are not one to one correlated. It's at best 0.5 to one correlated for a host of reasons. And we do have people willing to buy on negative leverage today, as long as they get to neutral leverage vis-a-vis rent growth in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, The forward curve is used by many people to sound pretty smart and go, look at this forward curve. It's the largest trading market in the world. It's fixed income. It gives you a predictive algorithm on what rates might do, and you can see where it is peaking in April of 23 at 4.85. No idea, and it's always wrong, 100% wrong. Um, but something that I wanted to leave you with to think about is this, because this is right. And we'll just see how it works out. So these are historical Fed hikes. And if you look over time, so this goes back to 1990, uh, 1980, sorry. So if you look all the way to the left and go all the way through and you see successive Fed hikes, it gives you the duration of those Fed hikes over time. But note the steepness of this hike versus others. So this is likely to be a diminished time frame relative to the 23-month average period that you're seeing here in terms of rate hikes. If you drop down a notch, it then tells you, well, how long do we plateau? What is the, how long is the pain that we have to be at before they start going, oh, we overcorrected. And the average duration here is nine months, but you can see the last time this happened, is 7.3 and the only reason the average is a little skewed is the great financial recovery because it took so long to get to where we're going. So I would think about this. So let's just take the forward curve, predicting a peak in April. You stay there nine months and something starts happening. Is that unreasonable? Reasonable, I'll leave it to you. But at least here are the facts and you can think through it from that standpoint. We look pretty good relative to the rest of the world. Um, we look really good relative to macroeconomic issues. If you look at anywhere else in the world, which is why we're attracting so much overseas capital, particularly commercial real estate here, but we look pretty darn good, relatively speaking, to our risk-free rates. So if you look at where we are on the 10-year bond relative to everyone except the, the UK's had some issues, three prime ministers in two years, but other than that, you've just had a little issue going on in the uk that will normalize they're generally below so we're looking pretty good even with the hedging cost and then finally on esg just to uh to emphasize this a little bit it's 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 not going away Uh, so we as a real estate industry really need to think through this and these are all of your fund managers and or lps that have adopted components across everything the e the s and the g across the board so with that uh, we started late and i don't know if we're out of time kim Okay, so we got a couple questions. Please make them easy, so I end on a good note. Um, so we have time for a couple, or we can get everyone out of here. But thank you really, really much for taking your time out of a busy schedule just to be here and, and reasoning together about what's happening. Any questions? Oh, oh David, please don't. <laughs> The layup okay so David is asking the question about bitter pools which essentially said if you're going to take a property to market I'm assuming that's what you're asking yeah. if you're going to take a property to market are you going to get 15 to 20 bits so let me just put that in perspective he's been an industrial developer in Southern California completely out of touch with the reality for the rest of us. Um, so the answer is no. And the bitter fields are dramatically compressed, uh, depending upon the price. Pricing, the whole selling of an asset is very different today, and that would take an hour. Uh, but the bitter fields are compressed. But more importantly, David, it's the, com- the composition of the bitterfield. So what we're seeing with the composition of the Bitterfield almost across the board is you have uh, 70% private investors in some form versus institutional investors, and that would have been flipped the opposite 180 days ago. And I'll just end on this because I think we need to get everyone out of here. If you're an investor, it makes sense... Uh, by the way, I understand this market better than I did the last three years. I'll just get that on the table because people are actually thinking about risk and they're behaving like they used to behave, which is when you have periods of high volatility, everybody steps back a minute, 50% of the investors step back and go, hey, I think I need to think about this a little bit. So that's what they do, and that's what 50% of them are doing. But the other takeaway here, Dave, which is pretty interesting, the other 50%, are investing billions, and I mean individual investors, billions into the credit markets and the public market over the last 60 days and going, we don't think rates are going to remain as high for as long as the market does and we want to take advantage of this now for a lot of the reasons that we're seeing there. So you have very active investors that would buy one of your assets. Institutionally, they're just going to be outpriced by the private market right now. Uh, in the space or the non-institutional market well thank you everyone let's get back to work appreciate your time
3: so we're gonna uh, just a couple of more notes uh first of all i want to apologize for the parking situation i know it's been a nightmare so no matter where you parked the gate should be open and you should be fine. If you valet parked, I have someone's ticket. You dropped it, so double-check if you have your valet ticket because I have it. So I just want to make sure I do that. Also, to remind you, we are renewing memberships, and the market next year is going to come back. Mark just told us so. So you need to make sure you're a member and continue to be involved in the Real Estate Council. Um, I have an... have the great opportunity to be surrounded by brilliance every single year by what we do in the organization what we do in the industry and mark you are brilliant always has been and we really do appreciate you and thank you so much for being here today I also want to acknowledge the brilliance that I had a chance to be around this year our chairman Kim Butler has been an amazing leader in this very interesting time. And Kim, thank you for your leadership this year. It's been my pleasure to work with you. Uh, It's been an amazing program. Uh, This is uh, the last official educational program. We will have a member happy hour later this uh, before the end of the year, so stay tuned for an announcement about that. I cannot thank enough Bank of Texas for being Dan and Gilbert and team for being our sponsor for year after year. We really appreciate that. Uh, we also appreciate the Dallas Morning News. Steve Brown, thanks for being here. It's great to see you. And uh, our new, uh, and Stuart Tidal, who's been with us for the beginning as well. So thank you, Melissa and team. And our new sponsor, Global Pro, a new member and a new sponsor. So thank you, Global Rob. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm so appreciative of your continued support. Uh, we've done an awful lot of great things together this year and more to come. And I look forward to seeing you next year. Thank you very much and have a great holiday with your family.
1: That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Mark Gibson, the CEO of JLL Capital Markets Americas, for sharing his annual capital markets update. I'd also like to thank and recognize our speaker series sponsors for their support, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, the Dallas Morning News, and Global Pro. Remember, applications for the ALC class of 2023 are now open, so check those out at recouncil.com backslash ALC for more information and to apply now. And as always, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, follow Trek on social media and YouTube, and renew your membership for next year and cross this very important item off your holiday to-do list. We've linked to everything for you in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio.